more before I answer you. Any question, Jack? Now, let me tell you, it's a very pleasant surprise coming back after eight months from England to get such a wonderful break to be on the television and you, you interview me. And It's our pleasure to have you, believe me, because it's always wonderful meeting you and we're not just throwing plaudits around here either. Uh, incidentally, I, w I do want to comment on one thing, how wonderfully well you look. You look as though you had a rest over there. You look as though you have complete ease of mind coming back. Thank you. God is very good to me. <laughs> I can tell that. Now, um, you see, I'm 30 years here in America, and uh, eight months ago, I was called to come to England to revive the American version of Dracula. The year was 1917. Michael Kuritz was directing a silent Hungarian film called Az Azredis, or The Colonel. A man named Erzted Olt had a part in this, as well as 12 other silent Hungarian films between 1917 and 1918, before he then headed to Germany, where, of course, he was in several more films. October 1920, he decided he wanted to emigrate to the United States of America, and he made it to New Orleans by December 1920. Then he decided to go to New York, where he went through the Ellis Island Inspector's Inspection in March 1921. By June 26, 1931, he was a naturalized citizen. Now, he was in many plays and many more silent film roles, the first American one being 1923's The Silent Command. He often played villains and continentals. By 1927, he was actually asked to star in a Broadway production of Dracula. It ran 261 initial shows, and then it toured the United States between 1928 and 1929. By the end of a West Coast run, our young Hungarian decided that he wanted to stay in California. He took to the stage in yet another run of Dracula and then was contracted by Fox. Believe it or not, even though his stage performance was critically acclaimed, he was not Universal Pictures' first choice for the film version of Dracula. Thank God he ended up in the part anyway, right? And was responsible for a whole lot of people assuming that Dracula had a Hungarian accent for so many years. We are, of course, talking about Bela Lugosi or Bela Ferenc Dozo Blasco. Pardon me, Dezzo Blasco who was born October 20th, 1882, and died August 16, 1956. And welcome to this week's Pinkie Pod Spooky Season Spooktacular. And you cannot have Halloween without vampires. Well, I think you need them all year, but... And you cannot have vampires without Bela. And yes, it is Bela. Not Bella. Bela. So welcome to this week's Pinky Pod. Are you ready to talk about this lovely, amazing, interesting Bela? Bela, Bela, Bela. Don't know what I was going to say. I paused because I was like, wait, what was I going to say? Now today, I am actually going to end up doing quite a bit from Bela's official website because it is run by his son, his one and only son, Bela Lugosi Jr., and so I'll probably just read from it because who better to tell you about this man than his own son. And then we'll discuss, of course, 
the most famous film, maybe some behind the scenes, and also some others you might not have heard of. And that initial thing that I was playing uh, for you where you heard his voice was one of a few interviews that he did with some different people over time, and I found it on the YouTubes. So in just a moment, we will get to it. But before I do, I would just like to remind you that if you like what I do, please review. And if you don't, then you can just keep it to yourself. That's cool. You can also share. Visit me on Twitter at PodPinky. On Instagram at Pinky underscore podcast. I always put cool pictures of things I do and just other random things I think might be interesting. I have buymeacoffee.com slash PinkyPod where you can just tip me or just come say hi, hoping to have a little community. You can also subscribe. Some of them say, oh, to view this, you have to subscribe for $10. You don't. There's a $2 one. I think if you click through, you'll find it. Also, just telling people about this, though, is really helpful. You don't have to do any of that if you don't want to. I always have links for merchandise and things in my show notes as well as my sources. Oh, and speaking of the Buy Me A Coffee website, I need to welcome a new producer-level subscriber. Hello, Robert McCoy. Thank you so much for joining up, and I hope other people will come and see what we're up to. Got some special posts, members only. Hope to do a lot more. Would probably even do special episodes. Might even take requests. But first, I gotta get some people. Okay. Now, I think we're ready to talk about Bella. We are going to go straight to BellaLugosi.com, which again is the official website. <clears throat> and a lot of this is by his own son. And so he's got a little uh, page here that I particularly like. Bella Lugosi facts, like fast facts. So this is where I got his birth name is Bella Ferenc Dezzo Blasco, which I'm probably mangling. His nickname, Bella Dracula Lugosi. Now Lugos, Hungary is where he was born and it's located near the western border of the Transylvanian Alps in what is now Lugos, Romania which does seem rather appropriate, doesn't it? Where he died was at his home at 5620 Herald Way in Los Angeles, California. And he is buried in one of his Dracula capes in the grotto at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. He was six foot one, eyes of blue, hair color dark brown. And one of his favorite things to do was reading listening to Hungarian music as well, and walking. He also does have, speaking of walking, a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 6340 Hollywood Boulevard. It's in the southeast corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Ivor Avenue. His parents were Istvan Blasco and Paula Divodnik. He had siblings, some older brothers, Laszlo and Lajos, and an older sister, Vilma. Now, this was one I didn't know. I didn't realize how many times he was married. No judgment. I just didn't know, and I don't know how many of you know. There was Ilona Zmik, married 1917 to 1920. Another Ilona, this time Ilona von Manta, married 1921 to 1924. 
Beatrice Woodruff Weeks, and they were only married for three days, 1929 to 1929. Lillian Arch, married 1933 to 1953. And Hope Leninger, married 1955 to 1956. So the one child that he fathered with Lillian Arch, which he was married to the longest, looks like about 20 years, is Bela G. Lugosi, a.k.a. Bela Lugosi Jr., who was born January 5th, 1938. Some other neat little facts. Lugosi der derived his professional surname from Lugos, the town of his birth. Lugosi served in the Hungarian ski patrol of the 43rd Division of the Austro-Hungarian Austro Army during World War I, fighting the Russians near the Austrian border. Lugosi had an extensive stage career in Hungary, including roles in many of the classic plays, totaling 172 stage performances. He first appeared in Hungarian films under the name Aristid Olt, which I probably am still saying incorrectly. He was lawfully admitted into the United States through Ellis Island, which I mentioned. I also mentioned as it you know, verifies here that he became a naturalized citizen, 1931. He created his portrayal of Count Dracula in the 1927 Broadway stage production, the makeup, the style of dress, the mannerisms. So he came up with that. Along with his distinct accent, because of course he couldn't help that, that's where he was from, this became the characterization for which he was famous. When he was cast, of course, in Universal's film version, he brought that same portrayal to the screen. The film opened February 12, 1931 at the Roxy Theater in New York and on February 14, 1931 throughout the United States. This one I knew because I do have a lot of vampire lore because I know who the first person was to show fangs, but some of you may not have realized this. Bela never wore fangs. Never, ever. Did you know that? Do you know who the first one was as far as American? I do. That would be Sir Christopher Lee. First one to show fangs. Iconic bloodshot eyes, close-up bloody fang moment. I even have that uh, film, and I've now forgotten the precise title of that, but that was one of the, the uh, Hammer Horror films. There's your there's your Dracula trivia there. Bela never showed fangs because he never wore any. What he is known for to me is the stare, the eyes, right? And they would they would light them very noir style, but they would highlight his eyes specifically. That was one of his things. Now, he made 18 films at Universal Studios. He and Boris Karloff appeared together in eight films. They had a friendly, professional relationship, but apparently did not socialize Offset. He was actually, Bela, a founding member of number 28 of the Screen Actors Guild. Another interesting bit of trivia, for use in the Night on Bald Mountain sequence of Walt Disney's Fantasia, which is 1940, Bela performed in live-action reference footage for the demon Chernobog which I think is also a Hungarian demon. In his 50-year career, Lugosi played a vampire on film four times. 
you probably would think it was a lot more, but only four times as far as being a, a vampire. And only twice as Count Dracula. Now, how do you like that? So iconic. So iconic. Only twice. And one of them was Dracula, 1931. And the other, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, 1948. So really? Only one serious portrayal of Dracula. And we still talk about it. That's how amazing it was. Bella has been immortalized by the 1979 Bauhaus song, Bella Lugosi's Dead. I've seen them in person and heard them perform it. He was honored by the U.S. Postal Service with a commemorative postage stamp as part of a set of five celebrating famous movie monsters which was issued September 30th, 1997. So if you have one of those, pretty cool. Now here are some other facts noted by his son in his own words. Dad was an avid cigar smoker. Once he lit a cigar, if he had to interrupt his smoking, he would leave it in some inconspicuous place like a planter box outside the door. During stage performances, my mom, Lillian, would keep my dad's cigar lit by puffing on it off stage while he was performing, so that way he could smoke between scenes. Dad thoroughly enjoyed Hungarian music and food, and his favorite dish was stuffed cabbage. My dad never drove a car or flew on an airplane. He traveled by car with my mother Lillian, her driving, or he would take the train or a ship when traveling overseas. Dad loved dogs, particularly large dogs. In addition to his Dobermans, Hector and Pluto, one of Dad's favorites was his white German shepherd named Baudry. He was an avid reader of newspapers and kept current with events around the country and around the world. Dad encouraged me to have a profession and avoid being an actor because he believed actors were too dependent on producers and agents. He had a point. As a disciplinary tool, all Dad had to do was give me that famous stare. So even his son was like, oh my God, the stare. <laughs> Dad loved California wines. He also enjoyed Coors beer and imported sulfur water. I would never have guessed the Coors beer. Because as far as beers go, there's way better beer. But this was a long time ago. He goes on to say Dad was a supporter of Los Angeles Hungarian soccer team, the Magyars, and for a time served as honorary president of the Los Angeles Soccer League. Dad developed a lakeside residential subdivision called Lugosi Park in Lake Ellisonora, California. It is since sold and divided. The street names still remain. Lillian Avenue and Archway, after my mother's maiden name, Lillian Arch. He was a frequent visitor to the Glen Ivy Hot Springs in Corona, California. And Marlon Brando was one of his favorite actors. How cool is that? I just love that he has this website for him. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. And I'll read to you now a little bit, again, in his uh, Bela Jr.'s own words. Bela Lugosi as Dracula. My father, Bela Lugosi, created his signature portrayal of the sophisticated Count on the Broadway stage, which he later brought to Universal Studios in its classic 1931 horror film, Dracula. He thus played a pivotal role in the modern mythology and rich legend of my favorite monster, which he has in quotations, which I really like because we agree. Is he really a monster? I digress. 
It is only fitting that the man forever associated with Dracula was actually born near the western border of Transylvania in 1882, not far from the legendary Count's home in the Carpathian Mountains. Reared in the town of Lugos, a name he would later adopt as his own, my father was the youngest of four children. He grew up preferring acting to schoolwork, much to the dismay of his father, a strict businessman. However, his desire to act proved stronger than his family ties or schooling, and at an early age, he left home to pursue his acting career. By the early 1900s, he was an established actor in Hungary. By 1913, he was a member of the National Theater of Budapest, where he was highly regarded for his versatility. Here, the man that would become known for his role as the Devil's Disciple was also heralded for playing the role, among others, of Jesus Christ. Did you know that one of our most famous Draculas played Jesus Christ? Well, now you do. Although actors were exempt from military service, Dad left the theater and volunteered for service when patriotism called. As part of the 43rd Division of the Hungarian Army Ski Patrol, he was wounded on the Russian front at the end of World War I. Hungary was embroiled in political problems, and Dad participated in the revolution. He had taken an active role on behalf of the Actors' Union, found himself on the wrong side of the ruling party, and in 1919 was forced to flee the country. So it wasn't necessarily by choice, y'all. Uh, although I feel like he probably would have emigrated anyway if he wanted to keep pursuing. It, it just seems like a lot of people wanted to come to Hollywood over the years, right? I could be wrong, but this kind of spurned him to leave. So it says here he went to Vienna and then on to Germany, where he continued his career. He was still pursued, apparently, though, which is then why he left Germany. So it's good to have this filled in by his son. This is very interesting. So he found safe passage on a merchant ship as a crewman. So that's how he got here. Still intent on continuing his career of acting, he found his opportunity in the American theater. Not knowing the English language proved only a small obstacle. He simply formed a Hungarian stock company and surrounded himself with expatriates. His first English-speaking play, The Red Poppy, brought him rave reviews. Now, unknown to the reviewers at the time, Dad had memorized the entire part phonetically. An amazing task in itself. I was wondering when we would get to that. I have heard many times how he had to memorize the lines to play Dracula. We will get to it, but this shows you that that might be a little conflated. By the time he played that, he he probably had a better grasp of the English language. But when he did these original plays, he didn't speak English. Okay? He did not really speak English. He had to memorize it as it was written. So he didn't necessarily possibly even understand exactly what he was saying unless somebody translated it back for him how do you like that think about that and then think about i to i think makes him an even more exceptional actor because they say he got rave reviews and everything if he was a little unsure of what exactly he was portraying possibly you know maybe he got to read it in a hungarian okay fair enough but to be acting in a language that you don't even really comprehend and to still give a good performance. I think that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Don't you? I think that sounds hard. 
I think that sounds really difficult. Okay. So goes on to here to, and he was very versatile. We, we know him so much as Dracula and there's some other films that I have that you may have heard of like white zombie devil bat. You know, he did do other horror type films that people associate him with that, but he was actually very versatile. I mean, the guy played Jesus Christ for God's sake. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. So he played classic roles in Europe and America, everything from Shakespeare to romantic leads. And his big break, of course, was the Broadway production of Dracula. So those shows that I told you they did, it was 33 weeks on Broadway and then two years of touring. He then had a performance in the 13th chair, which is what brought him to Universal Studios' attention. And because of the death of the great Lon Chaney, that's how Bela got the role. So it sounds like Lon was considered for the role of Dracula. And no offense to Lon, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. He He probably could have been amazing, but you look at it now and you think, no way. How could anybody other than Bela do this, you know? But Lon Chaney was pretty incredible himself. And I should probably do an episode on him if we're going to uh, go with some Halloween-themed legends. Yeah, I think I might. Now he goes on to say that his father's characterization of Dracula was, was so perfected to the point that, much to the chagrin of Universal Studios makeup legend Jack Pierce, he did his own makeup for the film. Bela did his own makeup. And for years after that, he would make personal appearances and played the part again on stage. He was billed as Dracula himself and Bela Dracula Lugosi. If ever an actor's fate was to come full circle, it was dad's. His unforgettable performance as Dracula on stage and later in film was so masterful that it set the standard for all interpretations to come. Spoken in his unforgettable voice and accent, Dad's lines from the film have become some of the most well-known and imitated in movie history, such as, I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. This is very old wine. I hope you will like it. And of course, the most memorable. I never drink wine. Just go with me on my shitty accent. I could have been really melodramatic. I held back, okay? Now, in 1931, a lot of people were not actually aware of vampire lore. It was really horrific to think about vampires walking among them, you know, drinking blood of their victims and turning them into the undead. People were just learning about it. So these films really freaked people out. I, I imagine that Bela scared the shit out of them, right? Scared the shit out of them. So in 1931, with this unknown nobleman uttered his, uttering his menacing welcome in the film, and with Bela's pauses and intonations, the graceful slow hand, his aristocratic bearing, the formal white tie coat and tails, his raised collar cape. This is what defines what everybody sees in their mind as Dracula. There's no denying this. So with the success of Dracula, Universal Studios teamed up with Bela and Boris Karloff. 
They were embraced by the United States as their favorite monster men, although he says here that his dad longed to break away from the typecast of horror roles. It just was not, that just didn't happen. I mean, just that that's what they wanted from him. So he went on to play many more roles, such as Dr. Miracle, with a K, in Murders in the Rue Morgue, which you probably have heard of, that should be Poe, 1932, Murder Legendre in White Zombie, which I have that film, 1932, and you really should check it out sometime. It's a very, very cool old film, and he's got a little, uh, you know, ultra villain, as I recall, little facial hair and stuff. He was Sayer of the Law in Island of Lost Souls in 1933. He was Igor in Son of Frankenstein in 1939. Did you know that? And in 1943, he actually played the Frankenstein monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. This was the role that Boris Karloff originated in the 1931 film after Bela had turned down the part because it had no speaking lines. So Dracula had made him a horror film star and one of the most copied characters in cinematic history. This guy, I'm just, he, he speaks so lovingly of his father just even writing these articles. It's just beautiful. His influence extends to every subsequent film vampire. His slicked hair and widow's peak, clean-shaven and handsome face, burning eyes, heavy accent, and courtly manner are the appearance of what Dracula will forever be. Bela Jr. here goes on to say, On a personal note, it's difficult for me to believe that Dad has been gone for so many years. My memory is still very clear of the sound of his voice, the look of his eyes, his long stride when he was walking, his interest in me, and the magnitude of his feelings of elation, depression, joy, sorrow. People recognized him even walking on a dark street just by the sound of his voice. Even as a young person, I sensed that he was anything but an average man. His road was one that few people could have traveled. People have often asked me to describe dad's real character, but this is impossible because he was such a complicated personality. Devil, angel, king, pauper, political activist, humanitarian, wise man, counselor, and above all, a man who loved everything life had to offer. I remember other characteristics about dad. He usually called me son and prefaced his remarks to me with that word. His hands and motions were fascinating to watch because he did everything with such grace as if it were a ritual. His eyes were all that he needed to use when I was bad. He would just look at me and it would scare me into behaving. Because I thought of him as my father, I was not frightened of him as a horror man in the theatrical sense, although my young friends would hide behind the theater seats when we went to see his movies. I spent time with my dad when I reached my early teens, but by then he was already 68 years old, and I realized that he did not have the ability to do the things with me that a younger father would, but he compensated by giving me something only a man his age could offer a more experienced perspective on life. He was not the type of person to brag about his past, but he would mention bits and pieces when he felt they could help me in my own life. As a young teenager, I remember him telling me, and by his own actions showing me, that I should set my sights on certain goals and then pursue those goals relentlessly until I had achieved them. We didn't really have father and son talks, but on one occasion he told me about the time when he was struggling to become a star in Europe. He felt that his lack of education was a handicap in talking to people with more education. He decided he should read everything 
from science to religion to music to politics so that he could speak their language. He wanted to be a generalist who could talk intelligently about a wide variety of topics. And Reed is what he did every day of his life right up until his death. I could sense that he wanted his son to be an achiever. And you can go on here if you come to this website, belelugosi.com. Click on the um, legacy biography, just the whole webpage, the whole, it's so good. And he has such beautiful things to say about him here. Talks about parties with gypsy music, uh, a lot of friends who were not actually a lot of movie people, just friends, that he was a great entertainer. People loved to come and visit. Uh, this is in the house on Whipple Street in North Hollywood, where Bela Jr. says he spent a lot of his uh, very young childhood, very early. And it took him a while to realize that not everybody's father was as famous as his. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. He didn't know this at first. It was just normal. During the summers, uh, I guess he went to military and junior, you know, military school and junior high school. That's Bela Jr. And he lived with his grandparents when his dad and mom would travel. They would go east for summer stock plays. When he was 13, he decided to go east with his parents for summer stock. So even though his dad was busy with rehearsals and reading scripts and performances, he also would teach him things. And he taught him the fundamentals of canoeing on a lake in New Jersey because he thought that was important. During one of their drives east, he spent a good part of the time in the car trying to uh, have his son understand all of the things around him. They would talk about local geology, the strata of rocks, history of towns, or anything that came to his mind. Doesn't that just sound like an amazing dad? That is just really awesome. I like that. I like that. He he finishes up by saying that they didn't really, they did discuss his work, but not often. He did actually show him how he prepared scripts and how he practiced his characterizations. There was a sore point in that his roles were not varied. And yeah, after reading some of this earlier stuff about him and the reviews about him and, and how versatile he was, I can imagine that would have been very depressing they really stuck him in that horror film role. And, of course, it has been said that, and he, and he was 73 when he died, those, those last films he did, The Abbott and Costello, I'm sure any of you who know anything about him at all have already heard how he was basically penniless and, you know, this great, elegant, amazing actor a lot of people felt became a bit of a parody of himself in the end and didn't, you know, just lonely towards the end, it seems like. But we're going to look up more of that and get into that. We're going to get into that. His uh, son doesn't say much about it, which I don't blame him. So let's go ahead and get a little more into some extra details. Late in Bela's life, we were talking about how he kind of shall we say, went off into obscurity. He did start receiving some uh, star billing in films with Ed Wood. And if you've ever seen that film, uh, that's Tim Burton, right? With Johnny Depp. 
that's what, you know, it's about Edward. And I believe they do have, yes, they do have Bela in that. It's sort of a nonfiction slash fiction film. So if you've heard of Edward, he was an eccentric person and didn't always do too well with his films, but you got to give it to him for being ambitious. Ed was a huge fan of Bela Lugosi. And he's the one who found him living practically in obscurity, almost poverty level. And he offered him roles in his films, which I think is very sweet. I think that's very sweet. Um, he offered him roles such as an anonymous narrator in Glen or Glenda from 1953 and a Dr. Frankenstein-like mad scientist in Bride of the Monster in 1955. During post-production of that one, I guess Lugosi sought treatment for an apparent drug addiction, is what people say. And the premiere of the film was supposed to help pay for his expenses. There is a note here, and uh, I got this information from Wikipedia, was that there's a biography by Kitty Kelly of Frank Sinatra that when Frank heard of Lugosi's problems, he helped with the expenses and visited Lugosi at the hospital. And Sinatra recalled Lugosi's amazement that he had come to visit him because they had never met before. So that's really cool. Bless you, Frank. There was an interview that he did, and I think that I've seen it, when he was exiting the treatment center in 1955, and he mentions that he's about to work on a new Edward film, which would have been called The Ghoul, G-H-O-U-L, Goes West. It was one of the several products, uh, projects that Edward had proposed to him, such as, uh, including, pardon me, The Phantom Ghoul and Dr. Acula. And they had Lugosi and his Dracula cake so that they could shoot some test footage. No storyline or anything. They just had him in his cape, kind of shot some impromptu test footage. It's been a long time since I've seen Edward, but I believe that that is in that film. And they did this in front of uh, one Tor Johnson's home. It's a suburb and a suburban graveyard. And then in front of Lugosi's own apartment building on Carlton Way. The footage ended up in Plan 9 from Outer Space in 1957 which was actually filmed after he died, but they still had this test footage. And interesting little note, Ed Wood hired Tom Mason, his who was his wife's chiropractor, to double for Lugosi in some additional shots. He was taller and thinner, though, quite noticeably, and had the lower half of his face covered up with the cape in every shot, just like Lugosi sometimes did in the Abbott and Costello film. So... There was one final film that that Bela fully made after his treatment in late 1955 called The Black Sheep for Bela Pictures. And it was released in 1956 through United Artists. To his disappointment, though, the role in this film was that of a mute. So he had absolutely no dialogue. And I think that that is another thing that a lot of us find very, very sad is that he finished out his career in a film where he just said nothing. And he really did have the most amazing voice. I urge you to just Google and go to all of his uh, 
YouTube, there, a lot of them are on YouTube, interviews with him. He just has such a smooth voice, such an amazing, captivating voice. You know, nobody else sounds like that. So a few little extra details here about some of his marriages, okay? That the first wife in 1917, Ilona Sismic, um, they divorced because he had to flee. His, you know, he had to leave Hungary. And she didn't want to leave her parents. The, the second Ilona that he married doesn't really say why they got divorced. And then it was apparently a little bit scandalous because he then married a very wealthy San Francisco resident, Beatrice Weeks, who was the widow of architect Charles Peter Weeks. But she filed for divorce four months later. She accused him of infidelity, claiming that Clara Bow was the other woman. Now, that, I think, is just a rumor. I don't want to besmirch the men. Hey, we're all human. Clara Bow was kind of famous. I don't know if that's true. Okay? In 1933, when he was 51, is when he married 22-year-old Lillian Arch. And that is Bela Jr.'s mama. She was the daughter of Hungarian immigrants. So Bela ended up with four grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. So Bela Lugosi Jr. is keeping up the name, which is so lovely. And he seems like a very lovely person. So that gives you just a little bit, uh, little bit of details on those. Also, then his fifth wife, he married in 1955. And she was 37 years younger than him. She was apparently a fan and had written him many letters when he was in the hospital uh, with his addiction. He was addicted to Demerol, which I, is, that's a painkiller, isn't it? And she would sign her letters, A Dash of Hope. They did stay married until his death about a year later. She herself died in Hawaii in 1997 at age 78, never remarried. It's easy to think that maybe she never got over him, huh? It's kind of sad and beautiful at the same time. So she never, ever remarried. Makes, makes me think maybe they would have stayed married, you know, if he, had, if he had lived longer. His official cause of death was a heart attack in his own apartment while he was taking a nap. And that's his wife, Hope, who found him dead in bed when she came home from work. Said to have died peacefully in his sleep. There's a rumor that he was clutching the script for The Final Curtain, which was another Ed Wood project. But this has been debunked. So if you heard that rumor, not true. It is, however, very much true that he does indeed uh, have his Dracula cape and his full costume with him, you know, buried in it, in his coffin. He did not request this. He did not request to be buried in the cloak. Bela Gilagosi, that's his son, confirmed on numerous occasions that he and his mother, Lillian, are the ones who made this decision. They asked for it, but they feel that this is what their father would have wanted, that his father would have wanted. So let's talk a little bit about his version of Dracula, shall we? Now, it's actually a pre-code film. Now, have you ever heard about the code? Approximately, was it 1935 or after? And I forgot the guy's name who totally started all this crap. But, but prior to about 1935, 
you could have nudity in films, you could get divorced, you could kiss, you could sleep in the same bed, etc., etc., etc. And then along comes this guy, the morality police. Is that Mills? I don't know. I think he's eventually we end up with movie ratings, okay? There's a really cool documentary I had seen about this, but I have forgotten some of the names. But this guy comes along and they decide that they have to have ratings in films, that you can't do this, you can't do that. So if people speak of pre-code and post-code, that's what we're talking about. And I, I'm, I always giggle about it a little bit because sometimes people will see old black and white films and go, oh my God, she's nude. How, you couldn't do that. Yeah, you could. Before the code, you could do a whole lot of things in old black and white films. So, But anybody who's ever asked, why are they sleeping in twin beds? Because of the code. Why do they kiss the, oh, so dramatically? And what I'm talking about is, like, I used to wonder before I knew about this, <laughs> you have people sitting on the edge of the bed or something, right? And if they were sitting on the bed together, you had to have at least one foot on the floor. So do you know those really super dramatic poses where they're like, the leg is outstretched and they're, uh, and they're that's why. They weren't actually trying to look cool and be all, oh, look at my dramatic leg. I'm so gorgeous. No, it's because they had to have a foot on the floor. <laughs> uh, what's some other ones while I'm digressing here? If you did something bad in the film, like cheat on your spouse, there had to have, you had to be punished. That was a rule. You had to be punished at the end or, you know, there had to be a happy ever after. If you committed murder, you had to be punished for it. There are some amazing films that you have probably watched and been like, man, that's a really good film, except for that quickie five-minute tidy ending. Well, they had to do the quickie five-minute tidy ending to even be able to have the film distributed. There's an amazing film, Leave Her to Heaven, with the absolutely stunning Gene Tierney. Look it up. That I remember watching it, I think it's 1940-1949. You gotta watch it. I don't want to spoil it. Watch it. I'm giving you homework. Leave her to heaven. Okay? And if you've seen it, talk to me on Twitter. There are some things that they do in this film that I'm like, how did you get away with this during code? And then you see the ending. And it would be easy to say like, wow, what a shame the ending ruins it. But they had no choice. So... Now you know why some of the things end the way they do. Now back to Dracula. So 1931, this was pre-code. So they didn't necessarily have to worry about those films. I do wonder if it would have affected much if this had been post-code. It's something to think about. Because vampires can be considered very sexual, even the scary ones. You can make arguments that drinking blood is a stand-in for oral sex. You know, those prudish Victorians, they wanted to talk about it, but they couldn't really talk about it, and they weren't actually that prudish. They just couldn't talk about it. Okay? Okay. I think we can agree. And that's a very personal violation. You could probably also view it as rape. All right? So just think about that if they tried to make that during code. Anyway getting a little too deep here. Let's just go on, shall we? This was the first sound film that was an adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel, and they actually got the rights to do it. Well, technically, this is the first one. 
I, I, I was about to say that backwards. There is, of course, Nosferatu by Murnau, which I have two copies of that, the 1922 silent film. It is unauthorized, and they were sued over it. And it's one of those cases of, thank goodness, somebody saved a copy because they were supposed to destroy all the copies. Somebody out there hid a couple of them, and that's why we even get to watch it. Bram Stoker's widow sued. And that's why he's called Count Orlock. Although I'd have to watch it again. I don't remember for sure. I think somewhere in the credits they accidentally left in Dracula. The more you know. So this is the first, and it's sound, not silent. As we already know, and I've told you, Lugosi originally played this many times on Broadway. And this is where I would also like to tell you that there's another actor that I love who I consider. I have, I have certain ones that I consider very pivotal vampire films that, that did something, that brought something new or changed a little bit the outlook. Another one would be Frank Langella. And it's maybe not a coincidence that Frank also played Dracula on stage. So there's another guy. There's another guy. Just amazing. Now, as far as uh, some notes on the production here, some of the other actors that were considered were Paul Money, Chester Morris, Ian Keith, John Ray, Joseph Skiltkraut, Arthur Edmund Carraway, and William Courtenay which I don't think I know any of these people. It will probably be a case of, well, if I saw their face, I would. He accepted. One of the reasons I think they went ahead and said yes is a paltry $500 per week salary for seven weeks of work, which amounted to $3,500. He made $3,500 for this film that ended up to this day being one of the quintessential vampire films. Quintessential Dracula. On September 29th, 1930 is when they began shooting at Universal City. They had a budget of $355,050 and a 36-day schedule. Todd Browning shot some scenes of Dracula's Castle and Borgo Pass all in the first week of production, uh, on set. According to numerous accounts, the production is alleged to have been a very disorganized affair, with the normally meticulous Don Browning leaving cinematographer Carl Frund to take over much of the shoot. So he ends up sort of an uncredited director. David Manners, who is who played John Harker, said this about the filming. I can still see Lugosi parading up and down the stage, posing in front of a full-length mirror, throwing his cape over his shoulder and shouting, I am Dracula! <laughs> He was mysterious and never really said anything to the other members of the cast except good morning when he arrived and good night when he left. He was polite, but always distant. Now, Manners also seemed to think that Lugosi was vain, an eccentric performer. I never thought he was acting. I just thought he was being the odd man that he was. You know what I say? Shut your mouth, David. I think maybe... You just were fooled by how good of an actor he was, and maybe he was a little method. Edward Van Sloan played Van Helsing on Broadway opposite Lugosi, and he then also got to play in the movie as well. He wondered why the film version reduced the large mirror that they'd apparently used on the play instead to the small cigarette box, you know, the famous, like, you can't see his, uh, you can't see his reflection, right? 
Now, an interesting note is Van Helsing also became this guy's one of his most famous screen roles, but he didn't really like the film very much. And in a letter to his nephew, he, he wrote, quote, that reminds me of your failure to see the Dracula film on TV. How lucky you were. What it must be like today. Overplayed, overwritten, altogether lousy. Another note is that Bernard Jukes, who played the role of Renfield on Broadway and during also the 1928 tour, he wanted the same part in the film, but they didn't give it to him. Went to somebody named Dwight Fry. More notes. The peasants at the beginning of the film are praying in Hungarian, and the signs in the village are also Hungarian. And this is due to the fact that when Bram Stoker wrote the original novel, the Borgo Pass in Transylvania was then part of the Kingdom of Hungary and within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, by the time the film was made, Transylvania had been part of Romania since 1918, but they went with what the book said. Scenes of crew members on the ship struggling in a violent storm were actually taken from a universal, one of Universal's silence films called The Stormbreaker. And this, I think, was a very common sort of practice. That film was 1925. So they, it, it, it was um, done in silent film projection speed, which makes it look sort of jerky, uh, sort of a sped up appearance when it is projected at 24 frames, 24 frames per second. And the sound film speed is kind of cobbled together with new, new footage. So there's you a little filmmaking trivia. They took a piece from another film that sort of matched and sort of didn't. When they finished the picture, they managed to do it for $341,191.20, which is just scooching under three hundred fifty. How many times does anybody stay under budget now, right? Now, Bela was already worried that he was going to be typecast before this was even released. He is said to have rejected an offer to once again reprise his role in another stage tour. No, not at any price. When I'm through with this picture, I hope to never hear of Dracula again. I cannot stand it. I do not intend that it shall possess me. That's supposedly what he said. Now, the special effects for this film are limited to things like fog, lightning, and flexible bats. And his transition, of course, from bat to person, always off camera. They use extended periods of silence, character close-ups for dramatic effect, and they will do two expository... I'm having trouble, really trouble with my tongue. Expository, like exposition. Intertitles, like a close-up of a newspaper article. Okay, what we're trying to say here is they will advance the story by showing you a close-up of a newspaper article, which is a lot like silent films. Very much is just, just silent films. They would do that because you didn't have dialogue, so you had to read the shit. And even the acting in this uh, 1931 film does kind of remind you, of, it does me, silent films. And if you think about it, of course, that makes perfect sense. They weren't very far out of the silent film era at all. And I would say that for silent films, you were a lot more exaggerated and melodramatic. So that's going to hold over for a little while, I'm sure. 
I don't know when the very first talkie was made, but this is pretty close. 1931, you know, you, yeah, they still had silent films out there, I think. So, and of course, Bela had done many silent films. No score was ever composed specifically for the film. So that probably helped them stay under budget. Music that you hear in the opening credits is an excerpt from Act Two of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. And then it was reused in 1932 for another universal horror film, The Mummy. In a theater scene where Dracula meets Dr. Seward, Harker, Mina, and Lucy, the end of the overture to Wagner's Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg can also be heard, as well as the opening of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony in B minor. In 1998, composer Philip Glass was commissioned to compose a score for the film. So it was performed by the Kronos Quartet under the direction of Michael Reisman, his usual conductor. Glass is uh, quoted as saying, the film is considered a classic. I felt the score needed to evoke the feeling of the world of the 19th century. And for that reason, I decided a string quartet would be the most evocative and effective. I wanted to stay away from the obvious effects associated with horror films. With the Kronos Quartet, we were able to add depth to the emotional layers of the film. Now, this new version of the film with this new score, I should say, was released by Universal Studios in 1999 on VHS. The DVD releases allow the viewer to choose between the unscored soundtrack or the glass score. So now you can do that on DVD. The soundtrack was released by Nonesuch Records in 1999, so you can also buy the soundtrack. And Kronos Quartet performed live during showings of the film in 1999, 2000, and 2017. So that's pretty cool. If you ever got to go to one of those, let me know. Let us know. Very cool. Now, Dracula was actually a pretty big deal, kind of a scary thing for a, a big Hollywood studio to do. I don't think anybody had really done much of anything like this before. And even though the book was, you know, considered literary, you know, a, a good thing, <laughs> well-respected, that's what I'm trying to say. They weren't sure if an American audience was ready to see some sort of, you know, killer, thriller, or scary, ooh. It's not that they had never ever seen, uh, you know, a chiller, shall we, shall we say, like The Cat and the Canary, 1927, but it kind of had some comedic relief, and Dracula had none of that, and no tricky ending that would downplay the whole thing. It was actually very serious. But the audience loved it, and it did really well at the box office. So it premiered at the Roxy Theater in New York City, February 12, 1931. I probably said that before. On Valentine's Day, a couple days later, the, throughout the U.S., people fainted in shock. At least that's what newspapers reported. It could also just be good publicity, but people fainted when seeing this film, which I believe, actually. So the publicity is something that the film studios definitely glommed onto. Like, ooh, let's keep telling everybody, oh, 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 it's so, oh, it's so horrible. You have to come and see, come and see, I dare you. So it definitely, it definitely got people to show up just because they were curious. And within 48 hours 
of it opening at Roxy Theater, it had sold 50,000 tickets. Now, this is 1931, you guys. 50,000 tickets for a $700,000 profit as, as it went on. Not too shabby. Now, what did the critics think about it? Well, for the most part, they seemed to like it. The New York Times called it the best of the many mystery films. They thought it was imaginative and that Helen Chandler's performance was excellent. Variety said that it was remarkably effective background of a creepy atmosphere, and it is difficult to think of anybody who could quite match the performance in the vampire part of Bella Lugosi, even to the faint flavor of foreign speech that fits so neatly. Side note, Bela did know English by this time. So I had brought that up earlier. You may have heard that he had to memorize the lines just to play the part. Well, it's true and not true. If you recall, throwback, he had to phonetically memorize lines for a play that he did years before this. And uh, as I was looking through some other things, uh, I was right in that he did not understand what he was saying, which makes the performance that much more amazing. But when it comes to Dracula, he did understand English. So you so put that one to rest, okay? You, you gotta space that out. It's true, but not for Dracula. He understood his lines in Dracula. Um, Film Daily declared that it was a fine melodrama and remarked that Lugosi had created one of the most unique and powerful roles of the screen. Time called it an exciting melodrama, not as good as it ought to be, but a cut above the ordinary trapdoor and winding sheet type of mystery film. John Mosher of The New Yorker wrote a negative review saying that there is no real illusion in the picture and this whole vampire business falls pretty flat. Well, we don't care what you think now, do we, John Mosher? <laughs> the Chicago Tribune did not actually think the film was as scary as the stage version. Interesting. Calling its framework too obvious and its attempts to frighten too evident, but they still decided it was quite satisfactory. Now, I've read some different things about uh, criticism of the director, which might be why it's not as good as it could have been. When the person said that, they talk about how he cut away at really important points, or has I was talking to you about the stare and the way they lit up his eyes. And it, it it's not a bad idea, but if you look at some of the pictures or you go watch the film again, it is kind of like a couple of flashlights in his eyes, like it's almost overdone. Some people think that that ruined the effect. So, uh, but, you know, I'm just suddenly thinking off the top of my head that I never knew he had blue eyes. Uh, because I think everything you ever saw him in was black and white. But, uh, yeah, just a reminder, Bela had blue eyes. Blue. So, the original running time of this film was 85 minutes. It was then reissued in 1936 after the code. So this is why I brought up the code to you. So the production code, as it was called. Two scenes were censored when it was re-released. So now we'll get into what might have happened had this been made during code. Because they talk about two scenes for sure that are taken out. But I just wonder if they would have pestered him through the whole filming. So 
one of the most significant cuts is an epilogue, which only plays during the ori original version. So if you if somebody has copies of the pre-1936 one, <laughs> let us know. So it is a scene that is supposed to be similar to a prologue from Frankenstein. And it uh, features Universal, the guy who constantly worked for Universal, Edward Van Sloan. He appears in a, what you call a curtain speech, like a curtain call, I guess, and tells the audience, Just a moment, ladies and gentlemen, a word before you go. We hope the memories of Dracula and Renfield won't give you bad dreams, so just a word of reassurance. When you get home tonight, and the lights have been turned out, and you are afraid to look behind the curtains, and you dread to see a face appear at the window. Why, just pull yourself together and remember that, after all, there are such things as vampires. Now, why did they take this out? I mean, there's, there's no nudity, there's no kissing, there's no couples in bed, right? Here's how strict the code was. It was removed because they were afraid it would encourage people to believe in the supernatural. And we can't have that. Oh, no. The scene was apparently briefly shown on a Road to Dracula documentary, which now I need to find that and watch it. But it's possibly unusable and might not be able to restore it. Does that fucking suck? I need to, I'm going to follow up on that. There are, uh, another thing that was cut was some audio of Dracula's off-camera death groans. They were shortened and partially muted, as were Renfield's screams as he's killed. They are later restored by MCA Universal on its laser disc and then DVD releases, so at least we got the sounds back. But see, they even cut that. It wasn't even just about sex, you guys. It was not even about sex. Now, this being one of the very first sound films, it was very common for Hollywood to produce foreign language versions using the same sets, costumes, and so on. So while they filmed this during the day, at night, George Melford used the sets to make the Spanish language version of Dracula, which a lot of other people like to bring up because Bela is not the only one, and it's true. This starred Carlos Velarius as Conde Dracula. It was actually a long thought to be lost. Like, people didn't even know where this movie was. And it was only rediscovered in the 70s. Big chunks of it rotted away. In, in the early 1990s, a decent copy was found in Cuba. It was then preserved in the U.S. National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. So check you out the Mexican Dracula, okay? Check it out. I remember seeing uh, that in a documentary. Maybe I have seen, I, I probably have seen that Road to Dracula documentary. It's just been too long ago. There is a third silent version of this film that was also released. 1931, some theaters were not yet wired for sound. So during the transition, studios often released alternative versions with the, uh, with the little titles, inner titles. Did you know that? There is a silent version. Now we go into a little... Oh, and there's a picture here. I'm looking right at it right now as I glance up at my computer with the spotlights on his eyes and they're just off. Like you could have at least gotten him straight, dude. 
Now, y'all have heard of Roger Ebert, right? And in 1999, he gave the film four out of uh, four out of four stars and praised Bela's performance, as well as Franz's cinematography, who might have also been the director, as we found out. And he includes it in his list of great movies. Empire gave it four out of five stars, and they commended Bela as well, calling it the Dracula against which all others are measured. They write that the film is staged and creaky, but it also has wonderful, unforgettable moments. John Oliver of the British Film Institute credits the film with establishing a popular on-screen image of the vampire. Absolutely. And the cinematic horror genre was born with the release of Dracula, is what he says. He does say that he feels the film is almost overly stage-bound in the middle section, but the virtues of its star performance and general visual style outweigh any deficits. So, Bella and the other people, the other actors, whatever problems are going on in the rest of the production, nobody gives a shit because they love these guys. What spun off of this later? Well, Frankenstein, 1931, when we talk about did this kick off the horror genre? Uh, Universal particularly just went for it. The Mummy, 1932. The Invisible Man, 1933. Bride of Frankenstein gave us another iconic moment of a woman who was modeled after Nefertiti. Look at the hair. She is. No joke. And was on screen for all of 10 minutes. And then there was The Wolfman in 1941. In 1936, there was Dracula's Daughter, which is actually a sequel that starts immediately after the end of this first film. Then another sequel, Son of Dracula, 1942, which had Lon Chaney Jr. And then seven uh, came seven years later. The Count comes back for three more films, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and then, of course, the comedy where Bela returns. They only cast Lugosi as Dracula that one more time, Abbott and Costello. They gave the role to John Carradine for the mid-40s films. And Lugosi did, however, play a vampire in three other movies during his career. And I think I have these on DVD as well. For, I for sure have um, Mark of the Vampire, 1935. He wasn't Dracula, but he was a vampire. The Return of the Vampire. 1943, and Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, 1952. So this is why a lot of people think that he played Dracula many, many times, but only one time was he actually Dracula. Although, I guess they're very similar. I mean, they, he still feels like Dracula. Now, I mentioned a while back the first person to show thanks, Christopher Lee. What did he say about Bela? Anyhow, about the Lugosi Dracula, I was so disappointed. Absolutely had been wanting to see it for a long, long time. There are aspects of it, for instance, that I considered ridiculous. Dracula's played too nice in the beginning. Practically no menace in the character. There was no shock or fright in it. Lugosi's hands too... He held them out stiffly, making him look like a puppet. His smile was not always sinister either. While thinking that Lugosi was in his younger days a wonderful-looking man who had tremendous presence and personality, Lee also thought that Lugosi 
was not the right man to play Dracula from the point of view of nationality, because Transylvania is in Romania, and he was an Hungarian from the town of Lugos, hence his name. Oh, <gasps> Christopher, how could you? <laughs> how could you? Oh, no, I wish I did not know that. Then we have Gary Oldman, who is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite uh, films. Actually does consider Lugosi to be his favorite Dracula and said he was really on to something. The way he moved, the way he sounded. And Oldman based his voice on Bela Lugosi's voice. So take that, Christopher Lee. I love you, Christopher Daddy, but I can't believe you said that. I wish I just want to unknow it. I want to unknow it. <laughs> a couple of other little points of trivia for you while we're here. That line, you know, I never drink wine, that is so iconic, never appeared in Bram Stoker's novel, nor was it in the original production of the play. When the play was revived in 1977 with Frank Langella, they added the line to the script because it's just so damn good. Also, the visuals of the play and, I would say, the film are different from the novel. Um, in the novel and the silent film, Nusfratu, Dracula is repulsive, right? Totally repulsive. There are moments in the... Actually, an interesting thing about the book, you really should read it if you haven't. You know, it's all pieces of journals. Dracula is hardly in it firsthand. It's more people talking about him most of the time. And he's part of the brilliance of it is that it's just this menace that's always in the background, just kind of hovering over. But he's not really in it a lot, okay? But there are moments where, like, yeah, he looks like the old, gnarly, scary guy, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have Bela as this handsome, charming nobleman. And that's my friends, is the story. I mean, I you know, we could, we could go on forever and ever, probably, talking about how interesting Bela was. Um, but I think I've kind of hit the high points, hopefully. If I missed anything, let me know if there's something else you wanted to know about. But I, I think we did a good, pretty good job here. What do you think? Do you have a favorite Dracula? It doesn't have to be Bela. And, you know, don't be too pissed off at Christopher Lee. And besides, he's deceased now. So, you know, he doesn't give a shit. And he probably didn't give a shit when he was alive. And I'm sure there are other quotes from him where he probably was very nice about Bela. That one just stood out. But now to cap this off, I want to tell you a little bit about the Spanish version. As I mentioned, it was made on the same sets and with actually a lot of similar costumes. Lugosi and Velarius were said to even have shared the same toupee for the, uh, you know, the extra hair. The American crew would leave at six and they would start shooting the Spanish version at eight. It apparently went very smoothly. Spanish language Dracula completed filming in an amazing 22 days. Seven weeks for, for the Lugosi one, which was still really good when you look at how they do movies today. Okay. They weren't doing a bunch of CGI and stuff back then. Fair enough. And they weren't going on locations. But 22 days. 
And the Spanish one, Spanish language one also premiered in 1931, but in January before uh, Bela Lugosi's version. And it was a hit, y'all, with not just the Spanish press, but even the English-speaking press. And even Bela Lugosi called it beautiful, great, and splendid. And this is quoted in the Hollywood filmograph. The film and Tovar, the director, received a great deal of positive attention in the Mexican press, and Dracula was a huge hit in Mexico and American cities, which lar with large Hispanic populations. So how cool is that? How cool is that? And did I just say Tovar was the director? I think I meant to say uh, he played he played Dracula. Pardon me. I got confused. The Spanish language version, and I briefly touched on this before, was thought to be lost. And, you know, they kind of came across a version in the 70s, but it was completely rotted out. They couldn't do much. And then the 90s, they worked with Cinematica de Cuba. This was the UCLA Film and Television Archive worked with them to restore a movie that they had found, which allowed the horror fans to see the movie in its entirety for the first time in decades. And a lot of scholars actually say that the Spanish language Dracula is the best of the two films. They call the Spanish version a shot-by-shot -shot scathing critique of the Browning version. Hmm. Now, I think we all need to go out and watch that Spanish one now, don't we? Because they're calling it better than Bela's. I am now going to take you to A Tale of Two Draculas, the history, preservation, restoration, and legacy of Universal Studios' English and Spanish language, Dracula. This is on jservan85.wordpress.com. So, uh, Javier Servan is... I would say the author. And there's a whole thing here about it. I'm just giving you the website, really, because I, I want you to see this. I want you to look it up. I think you'll enjoy it. Lupita Tovar and Carlos Valerius are who were in Dracula. I'm a little confused on which one played Dracula now all of a sudden. Lupita might be Harker. I'm feeling pretty stupid right now. Other vampire film particularly to dracula trivia nine years after stoker's death is when the name dracula made its first unauthorized on-screen appearance and it wasn't nosferatu it was in the hungarian film dracula alala which is dracula's death from 1921 this was before the other one the similarities end with the title though and it's completely different than stoker's plot so I guess nobody did anything about that because it just was like, oh, this is nothing like it. The first adaptation was actually, as I also mentioned earlier, Nosparatu from Germany in 1922 by Murnau. It was a very simplified version of Stoker's plot. I, I Like I said, I have a couple of versions, a couple of copies of the film. The basic structure is there. It's unauthorized. Uh, but but Stoker's widow became aware of the German one and maybe just didn't even know about the Hungarian one anyway. That's what this says. And so she sued Prana Studios for copyright infringement. She won. And the studio was ordered to destroy the prints. But copies had already been distributed throughout the world and are still available. 1924 is when an authorized adaptation would be approved 
for a theatrical dramatization of Stoker's novel. And that was by Hamilton Dean, who initiated negotiations with Stoker's widow for the stage adaptation. So that's how that all started. That's how you go to stage. And it led to a London engagement in 1927. And you know where that's going. So da-di-da-di-da-di-da. Now, the playwright for it was John Balderston, who adapted an English script for an American audience. And they insisted on casting a mysterious foreigner to play Count Dracula. And that is when they found Bela Lugosi. So there you go. They wanted a mysterious foreigner, which is very interesting. Now let's get into film productions. Carl Lemel Jr., the 21-year-old son of the studio president, big fan of horror films. So with the advent of sound and uh, looser censorship restrictions, he got his father to buy the rights to the book and the play in August of 1930 for $40,000. So this was their first horror talking picture. They'd had other talking pictures, but the first supernatural horror. They had sound for some mystery things like the terror and the cat that creeps, which was mentioned before, and the gorilla. But the supernatural elements in those films were always exposed as being fake. You know, Dracula was the first time that they just ran with it, just ran with it. Now, they planned it to be based very much on the book, but they had some technical difficulties, the cost of production. They ended up adapting it from the play. Paul Koner was a young producer who was grappling with a problem. He was in love with actress Lupita Tovar. Tovar. Oh, well, it's a girl. God, I'm stupid. Who was contemplating returning to Mexico because she was not getting good roles at the studio. She had come to Hollywood to star in silent movies. But sound reduced the roles for an actress with limited English language skills. So what was his solution to keep this woman he loved in Hollywood so he could romance her? Well, he cast her in Spanish language films. And so that's when they convinced them that they needed some uh, foreign language versions of its other films to maintain the studio's foothold in foreign markets. And hence, we had the Spanish language version of Dracula. She actually also starred in The Cat That Creeps. That one keeps coming up, coming up, and coming up. Not only were some of, like the same toupee used in the same sets, they used the same marks, you know, like where they go to hit their mark for the, the frames. They used the same source material. But a lot of people still consider them to be aesthetically and technically different. And they, Kona really, really wanted the Spanish version to be superior. So the director he hired was, I guess, pretty famous at the time, George Melford. And George Robinson was in charge of cinematography. So they very specifically were in it to one-up the English version. Interestingly, George Melford, the director, did not speak Spanish. So he used an interpreter. And Paul Koner kept a moviola on set. And he, Melford, and Robertson would view the English crew's footage and purposely compose shots to be the opposite, mirror opposite. And that way they had a greater variety of camera angles than Todd Browning's film. If, In other words, if the American crew shot from left to right or right to left, then the Spanish crew would shoot from left to right or right to left, the opposite. 
If the, if the American crew used a close-up, Robinson would use a crane to move the camera towards the actor. The aesthetics of the film were enhanced by embellishing some set decorations. They used more special effects. They put more suggestive wardrobes on the uh, actresses, and they emphasized the sexual undertones of the film, which I have said, vampires, it's sex, baby. So the Spanish version uh, has a lot more mists, for example, that rise from coffins when they're open, and they have more risque dialogue. And the Spanish crew also followed the shooting script much more closely, which actually makes it a longer film, but it doesn't have uh, unresolved issues, such as Renfield appears to attack a, a maid who's fainted in the English version. But in the Spanish version, they show that this scene provides comic relief. He's actually interested in the fly that's landed on her. <laughs> and in the American film, the vampire, Lucy, she's never slain. She just wanders off into the night. But in the Spanish language film, Belsing drives Van Helsing drives a stake through her heart. And even though they started their production after the American crew did, I guess they started like October 10, 1930. And it was and the film is 30 minutes longer, you guys, than the English film. The Spanish crew wrapped November 8th. Just under four weeks. Plus they did additional retakes. So <laughs> and they both did I, I need to go watch the Spanish version you guys we should have a watch party anybody anybody in and of course I'm sure due to I'll get in trouble if I show it on screen but maybe we can put up the audio I don't know you guys let me know maybe you could do some kind of live watch party Um, <laughs> I think that sounds like a lot of fun I think that sounds like a lot of fun. We need to do the we need to do the Spanish one. We need to do the Spanish one. Anyway, go to this website, J Servin. It's J S E R V I N eighty five dot WordPress dot com, and look up the Dracula stuff. They got a good, lot of good. Uh, I could just keep going on with these anecdotes all day. I'm just sitting here jabbering off with you guys. You know, hope you don't mind. But uh, I mean, we're talking about Dracula, and. Uh, we totally have to do the Spanish language version. Have I ever even seen it? <gasps> you know, I'm going to check out HBO Max, yo. You'd be surprised what they have on there. They have a, the Vampire with a Y. I think that's Hungarian. I don't remember. They have some obscure things on there. Some of it's from uh, Turner Classic Movies. But if anybody finds it before I do... Uh, let me know how to watch it because I don't think I have a copy of that I've got some obscure films but not the Spanish language version of Dracula and now I really want to watch it and you know you do too alright alright I'll stop blathering now unless I think of something cool to add um, I may or may not bring him up again if I come across some other background notes I really didn't do a lot of my own really deep research, okay? Because when I came across Bela Lugosi Jr.'s website, I'm like, well, that's that's it right there. Uh, so I read you things straight from there. And then I, I did handwrite some of my own stuff for an opener. 
other things though I've just kind of picked up here and there going around things I had bookmarked I uh, was at Wikipedia I was at this jservant85 uh, 85.wordpress.com and just random things I would come across that would pop up while I was googling so if I was a little less organized I apologized but I just kind of wanted to off the cuff talk about you know one of the most iconic the most iconic sorry Christopher Lee Dracula in in all of history and he only did it once I don't count the Abbott and Costello okay <laughs> he only did it once and I'm gonna raise my wine glass this is to you Bella we will never ever you are immortal you have achieved immortality Thanks for listening, y'all. I will be doing other movie monsters, if you will, for all of this spooky season. And who knows, it may go well over into October, well past October, because as far as I'm concerned, Halloween is every day. Oh my God, y'all. I just went back and did the editing. You know, I listened back to it. I am so sorry about, I don't know if it's the microphone placement or what, but my S's. I hope you don't hate me. I hope you still love me and will come back and listen to me. I promise to do better next time. I don't mean to have show sound like show. <laughs> I can't seem to get rid of it. I might try again, but I'm not making any promises. And I really don't want to re-record the entire thing, so you're just going to have to deal with it. I hope you'll still love me. I love you. Okay, bye-bye.